Yola on KRCL, Stand for Myself. Starting off radioactive tonight, and ahead of that, eBay Hamilton wrapping up Afternoon Drive. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive Now, plugging you into grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives weeknights at 6. Later this hour, a report from the Salt Lake Community Bail Fund as it celebrates one year posting bail for individuals in need in Salt Lake County. Dr. Angela Dunn, head of the Salt Lake County Health Department, will give us a COVID update in a bit. But first, joining me to talk about domestic violence is Ma Black, host of Night Estereo, Saturday nights at 10 here on KRCL. Ma, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. One in three women in Utah, one in seven men in Utah in their lives will experience it. And over the weekend, I, I read about several cases of domestic violence, and there's one that you've become involved with, and that's the domestic homicide of Gabby Ramos in Taylorsville. She was a DJ on Spanish language radio here, and it's a case with echoes of the Gabby Petito case. But as you and I have spoken about, um, there's this thing that media does with with white women who are victims of crime and homicide um, and not with women of color. And you wanted to make sure this case got its um, its media attention because we're still looking for the person who did this to Gabby. That's right, Laura. And this morning when I arrived at Gabby's um, home and her family and friends were gathered there, that's the first concern that they um, told me that they weren't sure if Gabby Ramos was going to be getting the same media attention as Gabby Petito. And I told them that I was going to do everything that I could to make sure that her name and face and case remains in the media. And yes, he is, um, he hasn't been found. The person that they think did this hasn't been found. So it is very important to bring attention to her case, attention to her name, and just bring awareness of Domestic Violence Month, like you said. Gabriela Cifuentes Castilla, 38. This happened uh, early Sunday morning in Taylorsville. Gabby, better known as Gabby Ramos, for Spanish-language radio station La Mas Picosita, KMRI, 1550 AM, well-known member of the Hispanic community. And there's going to be a vigil tomorrow night, I understand. That is correct, Laura. We are having a vigil for Gavi tomorrow in Taylorsville at 5 p.m. I will give you all details, the exact location of the vigil, and we just want all the friends of Gavi, her family, and her radio listeners to come and gather in honor of her name and to make sure that this person gets caught. Uh, so, yes, that's taking place tomorrow, Tuesday, October 19 at 5 p.m. And where is that going to be? It is going to take place um, at 522, so 5522 West Autumn Park Drive. That is in Taylorsville, Utah. Now, I understand that Gabby is survived by her nine-year-old daughter. There's a GoFundMe campaign started to help raise money to have her body returned to Mexico for funeral services and for her daughter to also go to Mexico to live with her father, according to KSL.com in a story posted recently by reporter Pat Reavy. What can you tell us about that? That's an expensive proposition to, to do all that. 
It is very expensive to uh, send the body back of the Mexican nationals that for some reason have passed here in the States. So as a community, we are trying to gather funds of um, to support the family in whatever decisions they made. I know there were some discussions about um, having her stay here or going back to Mexico. We don't know. Her daughter, unfortunately, was a witness to the event. So she is going to need a lot of support. And yes, I was able to meet uh, Gabby's uh, daughter's father that's, that is visiting from Mexico. So Ma, another tragic case of domestic violence resulting in homicide in our community. What do you want folks to know out there if they're in this situation, no matter what pocket of our community they, they live in, about mm-hmm. the help that's available? Yes, I definitely want women and men to know that this situation, it does not discriminate. Uh, It doesn't matter if you are from Mexico or born here. Domestic violence affects all of us. And we need to end the stigma that it's uh, something that we need to hide. We need to speak about it. We need to recognize the red flags and be aware that we need to stop if somebody's mistreating us uh, psychologically, physically, emotionally. Those are big red flags and we need to let people know and seek help because there are so many resources in the state of Utah to help women and victims of domestic violence. I know this story hits home really close for you, your own story, but uh, a fellow DJ like you said, this does not discriminate. Doesn't Domestic violence doesn't care who you are or what you do. That is right, uh, Laura. And this uh, particularly case hits very close to home because, as you well know, we have talked about this on the show, in Mexico City, 10 to 12 women are killed every day. And uh, Gabby was actually trying to find a better life for her and her daughter and her sister. And it is just very tragic that she lost her life in the hands of a man that she loved and, you know, fleeing for from Mexico precisely to not be another victim of feminicidios, like we say in Spanish. And she ends up being killed here in a place where it was supposedly safer. So, yeah, it hits very close to home. And as many know, I am a survivor of domestic violence as well, a VAWA recipient, and we just want to make sure that this tragedy turns into bringing awareness to all the women out there um, that they need to seek help and they need to get out of these situations before it's too late. Ma Black, thank you so much for joining me. I'm sorry it's under such tragic circumstances. And we'll put links in the show notes tonight for the vigil that you shared earlier. But again, that's tomorrow night. What time and the address? It is tomorrow night, Tuesday, October 19 at 5 p.m. at 5222 West Autumn Park Drive in Taylorsville. Thanks, Ma. Thank you, Laura. Well, I've wanted to keep the focus on Gabby and her life as of this recording before we went to air Taylorsville police are still looking for who they believe to be the perpetrator of this domestic violence homicide. And that is Manuel Omar Berciaga Perea, 34 years old. He is believed to be driving a 2000 Chevy full-size truck 
with an extended cab and Utah license plate, U405M like Mike, N like November. Folks, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there is help, free and confidential help and support for victims and survivors of domestic and intimate partner violence. It's available 24-7 by calling 1-800-897-LINK. That's 1-800-897-5465. We'll put that in the show notes. It's a number that connects you to local resources in your community. But of course, if you or someone else is in immediate danger or in an emergency please call 911 immediately. When we come back, Dr. Angela Dunn with a COVID update. The Road Home, Volunteers of America of Utah, and other nonprofits in our community need new and gently used cold weather clothing to help folks in need this winter. To find a clothing drive and drop-off info near you, visit carousel.org. And thanks for making a difference. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Earlier this morning, I caught up with Dr. Angela Dunn, Executive Director and Medical Director of the Salt Lake County Health Department. I wanted her thoughts on booster shots. I got an email from the health department telling me I'm eligible, but I didn't fit any of the criteria they stated. And then there was the news this morning of the passing of former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell due to COVID complications. Um, So I wanted her thoughts on breakthrough COVID cases. Let's pick up the conversation with what she said is some good news. The good news is that we are nearing the end of October when we'll get more clarity on, of course, boost doses and that vaccine for five to 11 year olds. Um, so, so those two things really give me a lot of hope for the pandemic moving forward. But I think the situation with Colin Powell um, really brings home the point that we all need to be vaccinated to really protect those who are at highest risk from severe disease so that we don't pass it to them, right? Even if they are vaccinated, um, as we know, unfortunately, it can lead to death. So it's, it's up to us to protect the weakest among us. How would you advise folks to respond to those in their lives who are anti-vaxxers who might point to the Colin Powell case and say, see, it doesn't protect you? Yeah, I think, you know, when we're dealing with individuals who are really skeptical or against vaccine, it's important to ask questions and listen um, rather than trying to force more data or information down their throats. Um, really open up our minds as individuals who um, want the vaccine to, to understand that there are some skeptics out there for good reason too. some of them. Um, and to just really, I guess, listen and, and try to point them to trusted resources uh, for answers to their questions. And, and those trusted resources, a lot of time, can be just their healthcare provider or their local pharmacist so they can have that one-on-one discussion. Instead of cable news or the, the internet, perhaps. Yes. Um, I had a question about booster shots. I got this email from the health department. I was checking out the address and verifying it, saying I'm eligible for a booster, but then I look at the criteria and none of that matches me. So when should we expect to get the booster if we're under 65, if we aren't living in a long-term care facility, if we don't have underlying medical conditions, and if we don't live or work in a setting that puts us at higher risk of exposure to COVID-19? Yeah, so... Um, What we're expecting this week is those who got Johnson & Johnson, anyone who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, to potentially be eligible for a booster two months after they got their their initial um, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The CDC will release specific recommendations by the end of this week, but that's what the FDA recommended um, this past week was, you know, if you got Johnson & Johnson, anyone two months after you got it, 
um, go get another dose. For those of us who got the mRNA vaccine, so Pfizer or Moderna, um, and we're, we're under 65 or we're not in a high-risk setting or we don't have an immunocompromising condition, you know, I, I anticipate that eventually we will all be um, able to get the boost dose, but it's, it's going to be several months um, before that happens. I think we're still trying to figure out the, the risks and benefits of younger individuals getting a third dose versus the benefit of protection. And, and right now the data shows that we still pretty, pretty much have good protection from our initial doses of the vaccine. So it's not necessary for us to get the boost dose. Um, but again, I, my bet is that it will be coming in the next several months. I was looking at your last COVID weekly update, which I believe they come out on Tuesday. So we're due for another one tomorrow. But as of last week, you noted on the dashboard, 69% of Salt Lake County residents, 12 plus, are fully vaccinated. I think our number might be a little low because like the rest of Utah, we have lots of kids. But uh, the trend was up or going up. What's your expectation this week? So we are still seeing an increase in cases. um, And this makes not only public health nervous, but our healthcare workers and our hospital systems pretty nervous as we get deeper into fall and winter we typically have an increase in, for example, flu and other respiratory viruses that lead to hospitalization. So that usually stresses out our healthcare systems every year. So to see the inklings of potentially another surge like we had last year due to COVID is is very, very concerning. Um, So that's why we are greatly anticipating the vaccine becoming available for five to 11 year olds. And you know, every week we see an increase in number of individuals in Salt Lake County that are vaccinated. It is definitely slowing. Um, So we really are um, hoping that those who have been on the fence about getting vaccinated do so as soon as possible uh, to protect our our healthcare systems this winter. Your report last Tuesday also said that the county's southwest corner continues to drive cases. What's going on out there? So, not only does our Southwest corner have the highest case rates, they also unsurprisingly have our lowest vaccination rates. And so they really do go hand in hand. Um, What we're seeing in the Southwest corner, which is little different. So initially we saw low vaccination rates and high case rates on the West side of Salt Lake city. Um, But on the Southwest, we're seeing it more on a political divide, which is much harder for public health to combat when we see people's beliefs, beliefs tied to their politics. Um, it, it doesn't help for us to continuously do mobile events in that area or go door to door because their beliefs are so entrenched in their politics. So we're really looking for, for local leaders, local elected leaders to really come out and encourage their constituents to get vaccinated. You mentioned just a moment ago the other respiratory infections that are going around. About four weeks ago, I picked up one of those. I have no idea where. Still being careful, still wearing my mask, still washing hands, fully vaccinated. So what is going around? And uh, give us some advice for dealing with it. Sure. So actually at Primary Children's Hospital, the vast majority of kids that are hospitalized are hospitalized due to something called RSV. And that virus does circulate every single year. But this year it seems to be circulating more earlier and causing more hospitalizations. And that's just another cold-like virus that in some individuals can cause hospitalization. And and it's been particularly bad this year. Um, We also are starting to see an uptick in flu. Um, Typically flu peaks around February, but we're starting to see our first hospitalizations due to flu. Um, So again, what's interesting and I guess confusing to the public is 
all of these viruses cause the same symptoms initially. Um, so, you know, you could start with a little fatigue, a headache, a cough, um, and it could be COVID or it could be RSV. And the best way for us to know is for individuals with any symptoms to go ahead and get tested um, for COVID. That's the most important thing um, we can all do in addition to getting vaccinated is getting tested if we have symptoms um, so that we can be sure we're not spreading COVID unnecessarily. Uh, as we move forward into the heart of fall and winter, what are your main concerns, not just for COVID, but public health in general? I was reading a story about how we've put off so much of our health care because a year ago we were quarantining and that drove down flu. And now because we've been quarantining so much, we're not commingling our our cooties, so to speak, and we are more vulnerable to the flu or RSV or the common cold. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of what I mentioned earlier is leading into the later fall and winter season, um, we all still need to be very vigilant, just like we were last year in terms of making sure we get vaccinated against the flu and against COVID if we can. Um, if we are sick at all, making sure we're staying home, um, wearing a mask when we're in public settings that are pretty crowded. Um, you know, and if you're going to have a family gathering, which you totally can and you can do it safely, Make sure that those who are eligible are vaccinated and anybody who has symptoms just doesn't attend. Um, we really just need to protect each other this coming season, just like we did last year. Looking at the rates in the county, but across the state, I'm sure you're also keeping an eye on hospitalization and ICU capacity. Any concerns there that you'd like to update us on? Our hospitals um, across the state continue to be over capacity. Uh, they um, take an average of about three hours to find an individual in ICU bed. And while that may not sound like a long time for, for some of us lay people, um, in reality, if somebody's sick enough to need an ICU bed, three hours is life or death. Um, usually it takes minutes. And so we're unable to transfer patients, for example, from rural Utah to Salt Lake City that might need really um, advanced care, whether it's COVID or a heart attack or a stroke. Um, it really is impacting not just individuals who are unvaccinated from COVID, but people who have trauma or who have accidents or, or again, who have those common heart attacks or strokes. I did want to close on perhaps a note of positivity when we look at the data. Um, and from last week, a report said that COVID-19 cases are 15 percent lower than in 2020. Doesn't mean that it's still that that's, you know, a good level to be at. But the trend is a hopeful one. Yes, definitely. Uh, this time last year, we were on a huge surge um, that led to our hospitals having to um, use crisis standards of care. So we are lower than that. And we're hoping our peak is much lower than it was last year so that everyone in Utah can get the care they need. So to close, if you get a letter from the health department that says you're eligible, but you don't meet the criteria, talk to your trusted source of medical information, your health care provider, Dr. Dunn. Yep, absolutely. And in the meantime, if folks are looking for testing or vaccines, be it COVID or the flu, where can they find those through Salt Lake County Health Department? So they can go to saltlakehealth.org. So saltlakehealth.org has information on where you can get tested for free, where you can get vaccinated for free, and also information about COVID spread in our communities. Dr. Angela Dunn of the Salt Lake County Health Department. Check tonight's show notes for COVID testing and vaccine info for Salt Lake County. 
I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. We're going to talk about eliminating cash bail as the Salt Lake Community Bail Fund celebrates its one-year anniversary, bailing folks in need out of Salt Lake County Jail. Did you know that a portion of your Amazon purchases could benefit KRCL? Support local nonprofits, including KRCL, through Amazon Smile by visiting smile.amazon.com and selecting your preferred organization. Find details under the support tab at krcl.org. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in Radioactive tonight here on KRCL. Democracy Now! coming up at 7, Red, White, and Blues at 9 with Brian Kelm, and Michelle's Night Train at 10.30. I'm Laura Jones, and now a conversation about bailing people in need out of Salt Lake County Jail. Let's pass that microphone and find out more. My name is Josh Kivlovitz. I'm an organizer with the Salt Lake Community Bail Fund, and I'm here to talk about the work that we've been doing over this past year. Uh, my name is Katie Van Sleen. I'm an organizer with Decarcerate Utah, and I'm here to talk with Josh about the work that the Bail Fund has done in the past year. Just got your report, and it looks like uh, a rousing success for your first year. Josh and Katie. Josh, you want to run the big numbers for us about a year of bailouts? Yeah, for sure. Um, We are super excited to announce that in our first year, we were able to bail out 71 of our community members, totaling $147,000 in bail paid. Um, And we also were really excited about getting the word out so much so that we got over 250 requests for bail to be paid from our community just in our first year. That's incredible success in a first year of a community bail fund. And Katie, this is all part of the abolition of prison movement that Decarcerate Utah is part of. That's right. Uh, We see uh, cash bail and pretrial detention as a prong of the prison industrial complex that um, we are specifically targeting um, with our work in the bail fund. Now, we've talked with both your organizations on the show before, but I'd like to remind listeners about the groups and what they do. So why don't you explain a little bit more about Decarcerate Utah, Katie? Yeah, uh, Decarcerate Utah is a prison abolitionist group. We're a collective of people who seek to dismantle the prison industrial complex in all of its forms. And that means um, in ways that you might not always think. Um, It shows up in a lot of different places, like our schools and our communities, um, in ourselves. So we have a lot of different ongoing projects, but the bail fund is definitely one of the biggest. It's definitely taken um, a lot of our time and resources lately. I think perhaps the average person not involved in your cause might hear the phrase defund the police and think that's what the abolition of prisons movement is about. But it's more it's more than that soundbite. Um, while that that rallying cry might be part of it, it's much broader, like you were saying, um, to really show the effects of the prison industrial complex in our community. That's right. Um, And, you know, we have gotten, you know, we've heard a lot of flack about uh, catchphrases like that. But um, as we discuss it, I think we've come to agree that there's no use in watering down um, what we are fighting for and what we believe in. Uh, We're not going to begin with a compromise. You know, it's best to start with what we actually want and work from there. All right. And let's talk about how the bail fund is an outgrowth of the abolition movement, Josh. Tell us about the bail fund and why it was started here in Utah. Yeah. So the bail fund is specifically targeting one portion of this 
greater picture of abolition and that Katie talked about, right? We've talked about defund the police as kind of the way that our carceral system is present in our communities, but that system goes from arrest to charges, to our court system, to jail and to prisons. And the bail fund, we started particularly to help um, people who are in the system and have their freedoms denied because they've been charged with a crime but haven't been found guilty and simply don't have the financial resources to be able to navigate that system in the way that a lot of people do. For most people who have resources, they get uh, charges and are jailed and are able to pay their bail and return back to their life because they have that privilege. But for a lot of people in our community, even a $100 bail will keep them from being able to return to their jobs, to their families, to their loved ones, to their children. Um, and it creates this really unjust system that we're trying to change and allow for people who are part of that system to be able to be free and to have their dignity and respect. Um, and longer term, hopefully to take away this system so that way people aren't put in this position in the first place. Bail is meant to secure someone's uh, court date, in theory, putting it as simply as possible. But it's become a question of, uh, of, of wealth and poverty in our community. And I'm thinking of recent stories where judges uh, themselves are saying, uh, you know, setting bail for XYZ person in front of me means they're not going to get out. And they are presumed innocent in our court system, Josh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's really important to note because the research also shows that even if that is the function of bail, it's not effective. The longer someone spends in jail, the longer time it takes for them to get the money or have their community find the money to bail them out, the less likely it is that they're going to make their court date because now they're faced with all these barriers of having been removed from their support system, maybe lost their jobs or maybe lost custody of their children. And it makes it so much harder for someone to navigate that court system when we know that people make their court dates just as often as they're able to make their doctor's or dentist appointments. People want to show up to their court dates. And so we create this barrier for them that they don't deserve just because they don't have the financial resources. Katie, I'm Josh, looking, I'm sorry, go ahead, Katie. Pick no, up Josh one. just um, speaks to something that, that um, um, I think like really gets to like the grid of it, you know, like the longer a person is incarcerated in pretrial, the more likely they are to plead out to um, charges that they may otherwise fight. Um, which means that you have people um, pleading guilty sometimes to things that they would otherwise not if they had the resources and the support systems in place. Um, so we like really see this as a system of harm. In no way is it doing what it says it's supposed to be doing. And in all these other ways, it's enacting harm that either people don't realize or don't seem to care about. Now, the report that you've issued says that approximately 80 percent of people held in Salt Lake County jails have not been convicted of a crime, still presumed innocent under the law, yet remain in jail solely because they are unable to afford their bail. And out of sight, out of mind for the general public, I don't think understand that that's 80 percent of folks in Salt Lake County jails, more jails across the state, too. 
Yeah, it's a huge issue. And it's something that could happen to any of us, right? When we're talking about this big system that is inherently flawed and causes harm in our community, and we look at the way that it disproportionately affects Black people, Indigenous people, and other people of color, and how it affects people of working class and lower class, um, we know that they're more likely to be involved or interacting with police officers, meaning they're more likely to get charges against them, whether or not they're guilty for those charges. And it becomes part of this system that just because they are having more interaction or having more exposure to this harmful system, they're now put into this system without the ability to get out, even though like we talk about how they're not guilty. But I think an, um, an important other side of that coin too, is like, even if people are guilty, the function of jail doesn't help our community, right? Jail doesn't help people make get their needs met, be less likely to make, commit crimes. And we know that people need community. We know that people need resources. We know that people need mental health and substance use services. And they don't get that in jail. Um, and if we're truly trying to make our communities healthier, we need to be treating people more kindly and more compassionately and making sure that they get the freedom that they deserve and get the resources that they need. And jail often takes people steps backwards because not only does it, is it traumatic being in jail, but then you're also removed from the things that are protective factors to keep you from committing harm again. If that is, if you're in that 20% of people that is charged with the crime and convicted in court. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the Salt Lake Community Bail Fund. Josh Kivlovitz from that group and Katie Van Sleen from Decarcerate Utah. One of the things that your report also touches upon is bail reform in Utah, or rather our attempts. There was a bill that passed and then there was a bill that was undone. And Katie, maybe you can talk to us about that. Well, you know, um, the bail fund here in Salt Lake met in a national convergence with bail funds all across the country um, just this month. And we were really surprised to find that the problems that we face are relatively unique to us. Um, we are seeing much higher bail amounts um, in general. And in part, HB 206, the bill that you're referring to, um, required judges to consider a defendant's ability to pay. Now that's still um, left up um, to their interpretation in a lot of ways. So it was an imperfect measure by just about every means, but um, it did see lower bail amounts, um, which meant that we could pay more bail and bring more people home. But after that was um, repealed, we started seeing bail amounts shoot up again. And even with that like small measure in place, it meant that we were able to like practice much more harm reduction and pay many more bails. Um, what I found is that here in Utah, we're seeing like much higher bails than um, many other places across the country. Josh, any data on why that is? Is it our predominant culture, which is theological and therefore a heavy sense of right and wrong and perhaps a punitive approach? I think there's probably a couple different factors, and I certainly wouldn't rule that out. But I think there are also other things to note, too, in that we have a pretty heavy bail bond um, company representation in our government. It's all about that. the money. <laughs> it's all about the money. And we have a pretrial committee here in our legislature where 
a representative of bail bond companies sits and we don't have a seat at that table, but we know that the bail bond companies are part of the process and are contributing money to the process as well. And I think also to speak to what you were saying, I think there is a heavy sense of right and wrong about what is okay and what is not okay. But we know that that is often not really true to a lot of people's values about what is right and wrong. It's just something that is codified in our law. And even if it is right or wrong, the question we have to ask is, what are we doing to try and change that? And we know that jail and incarceration doesn't do anything to help people create less harm in their communities. So is it fair to say that Decarcerate Utah and the Salt Lake Community Bail Fund want bail to go away and bail bond companies, their livelihood rests on it continuing. Okay, it was a softball. I'm just teeing that up there for you. Oh, absolutely. We always say that our entire job is to put ourselves out of business. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we win. We want to be a short-term project. And they want to continue this as long as possible. Yeah. We've even tried to get our name up on the um, list of potential like bail companies at the jail and they won't let us. Why not? Because we don't charge money. I don't know. <laughs> How is that? I mean, is there some sort of rule law statute that says you must charge money to be on this list? I mean, that seems really ridiculous. It is truly ridiculous. But when you think about it, bail bond companies, it's a multi-billion dollar industry nationwide. There's a lot of power and a lot of money. And they're taking a, advantage of people who are put in a really tough position yeah. and know they have to get out of jail and get back to their community and do so even at the risk of taking on bail bond company loans or putting down collateral like their car and their house and risk losing it all just to be free. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we know is unjust and we hope to eventually get rid of. Well, HB 206 was enacted October 1st, 2020. And how long did it last before it was yanked by um, what seemed like a very coordinated, perhaps could be even characterized misinformation campaign about it? Yeah, I think it lasted a grand total of six or seven months. I think it mm -hmm. came into effect in October and then the next May, I think it was out. Mm -hmm. But the um, misinformation campaign about it had started well in advance of that legislative session, um, citing increase in crime and using yeah. some very anecdotal evidence when we did actually didn't have data to support that. Because it predated the data that they were trying to, to, sh to, exactly. to tout <laughs> predated the enactment of HB 206. Um, and so my question is, what's going to happen moving forward? I'm guessing there'll be another bill by one or two parties. <laughs> and I'm not sure where you all fall in that conversation, Josh and Katie. I think we're trying our best to get into those conversations. It's proven a lot more difficult than we hoped, but that was one of our um, intentions with publishing this report as we want to show people that we mean business and we're doing a lot of work to get people free and we're deserving of a seat at these tables because ultimately our goal is that legislation happens that takes away cash bail and not at the cost of taking away people's opportunity to get out of pretrial incarceration, but hoping to end pretrial incarceration in general. Katie. Oh, I just have to echo everything that Josh says. I, um, I can't help but notice the similarities in a lot of these conversations. You see with the um, arguments against defunding the police, how they'll also tote um, out conversations about uh, heightened uh, crime and law and order 
when in reality, there's not a uh, police department across the country that has been defunded. So how can we say that, uh, that they don't work? How can we say that ending cash bail is going to make our communities less safe when we've never given it a chance? And that's, I think, at the heart of the abolitionist ideal is that we want to try things that haven't been tried before. We're not saying we know exactly what the answer is, but we're saying we know this doesn't work and we want to try something else. So I'm guessing both the Bail Fund and Decarcerate Utah uh, continue to attend the Utah Pretrial Release and Supervision Committee meetings. Those are public um, Mm -hmm. to be present, to observe, but also weigh in when the opportunity arises. And I'm guessing some help that our listeners could do right now is to demand that you be put on that list for people seeking bail, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be a great way for folks to get involved. And Mm -hmm. there's tons of ways to help support this cause. Um, We're always looking for more help. We are completely volunteer run. So any energy that people are able to put into this effort, whether it be calling their legislators, talking to their local representatives, talking to their friends and family and sharing the education and information about what we're putting out into the community, and as well as putting their money behind their values, I think is, you know, there's all sorts of ways to support the bail fund and we need as much help as we can get in the state of Utah. You know, I was just thinking I've neglected to ask you to explain how the bail fund operates differently than the uh, a bail bonds person, perhaps. And uh, let's let's do that as we close this conversation, because you interact with folks who need bail much differently. Sure. So as Josh said, we are a volunteer run group. We meet every Monday um, to talk logistics, planning, organizing strategy. Um, a handful of us man the warm line. It gets forwarded right from the Google voice number to our cell phones. And we answer a number of calls right from the jail itself. We talk to um, people who are incarcerated there and ask us to pay their bail. Or sometimes we talk to their uh, community members, family members who ask us to. Um, We obtain consent from them. And then one of us goes to the jail and pays that bill cash in hand. I went down there with $1,100, which is a relatively small amount compared to what we've um, done previously um, just yesterday. It feels really good to um, know that you get someone out of jail when you do that. And um, that's really as simple as it is. We have prioritization methods, but we don't disconsider anyone. Anyone who requests bail from us is on our list until we can pay their bail or we don't need to anymore. So how does it differ from, say, a traditional relationship with a bail bonds person? Do you charge them anything, require 10 percent, um, uh, require them to show for their court cases, Josh? So we're quite different in all of those ways in that our goal is primarily to get as many people out of jail. And so we pay the full bond amount that they are um, set by the court and that releases them from jail. And we don't have any expectation that they pay any money back to us, owe us any time or money or service. And we don't require them to make their court date. Um, And the reason being is that We know that people try to make their court date. Most people want to attend their court date. And even if they miss their court date, we know that data shows a huge majority of people will still show up to court within the year of their court date. 
you know, that people want to do that and we want to help them and we don't need to be another person that is telling them what to do, when to be and where, when then we know they have other things going on in their life too. Um, we hope that people do make their court date because when the when they make their court date, we get our money back and we can use that to pay for more people's bail. But besides that, our goal is just to help people get out of jail and not become a part of the system that continues to disenfranchise and take away people's freedom. Now, recouping that when someone does honor their court date and does go through the process, do you then have to seek the return of that bail money? It's a pretty complicated system, actually. And we have a detailed spreadsheet logging um, and tracking all of the different cases that we're currently uh, watching. But we sometimes get that money right back. Sometimes we have to do a little bit of digging, a lot of emailing, poking. Um, But when we do, we deposit that money right back into our account and start over again. So what's the website for the Bail Fund and Decarcerate Utah so folks can check you out and decide about getting involved? Josh. You can check us out at www.slcbailfund.org. We've got a lot of information on there. You can reach out to us to get involved, and you can also make a donation there. And if you have money to spare but not a lot of time, you are welcome to set a monthly recurring donation to continue to sustain our work. And Katie- On the other hand, if you have not very much money but plenty of time and you appreciate our work, you can always shoot us an email to get involved at slcbailfund at gmail.com. And if you want to learn more about abolition and the work that Decarcerate Utah is doing, you can find us at decarcerateutah.org. Now, before I let you go, I understand that there is a Halloween variety show and fundraiser coming up on Halloween online. We are so excited about this. It's our second annual Halloween fundraiser, uh, virtually over Zoom. We're going to have a musicians, drag queens, um, an astrological forecast of the next year. Uh, And in our silent auction, which runs the week before Halloween, we're going to have goods and services from local businesses and artists. It's going to be like a total hoot and you can win some really cool stuff. You can register for that at betterunite.com slash slcbf. Halloween. That's Josh Kivlovitz of Salt Lake Community Bail Fund and Katie Van Sleen of Decarcerate Utah. The Salt Lake Community Bail Fund is fiscally sponsored by Blue Sky Institute. It's a local 501c3 organization dedicated to providing outreach and education on social justice issues. Check tonight's show notes for links to those organizations. I'm Laura Jones, and that's Radioactive for tonight. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there. Be well. Take care of each other. I'm going to leave you tonight with the five stair steps. Ooh, child, on KRCL 90.9.